Today on CityCast Boise. Today's the first day after jury selection in the case of Lori Vallow. This is a super complicated story, and I'll admit I haven't quite been able to wrap my head around it. Luckily, KTVB's Inside the Courtroom host Andrea Dearden is here to help us make sense of what could be the biggest criminal case Boise has ever seen. It's Monday, April 10th. I'm Emma Arnold, and this is what Boise's talking about. Before we really get into the details of this case, help us put it in perspective. Is this the biggest criminal case Boise has ever seen, in your opinion? I wouldn't say it's the biggest. Um, We have had several cases over the years, death penalty cases. We've had cases even that have been a change of venue and brought here. If you remember, probably mm, two decades ago, Sarah Johnson accused and and convicted of killing her parents in their Bellevue home. That was a a significant case. We've had the case of Azad Abdullah, um, who had uh, was convicted of killing his uh, children, setting the house on fire. So I mean, we have had We've certainly had some significant cases. However, um, this is the most and the biggest that we've seen in in quite a number of years. And I would say arguably the most complex, complicated, and the one with the most attention nationally, even internationally. Yeah. And we're getting a ton of national media attention right now, some of which, I mean, has been pretty sensationalized and like kind of gross and inhumane, in my opinion. So how are you thinking about this as a local following this story? Well, you know, I think as a journalist who is absolutely wanting to just take you and, you know, the viewers and those who cannot be in the courtroom inside, we, we want to make sure that we are covering that from a, you know, straight information. We aren't here to make decisions. We aren't here to to make judgments. So that's how we look at that. But you're right. I mean, the crime bloggers, the, you know, podcasters, there are, are stories across the country, and again, internationally. In fact, I just saw a comment the other day from someone who said she's been following it from Australia. Mm. And they call her, they call Lori Vallow, the the person on trial right now, um, the doomsday mom, because there was, you know, a a sort of cult-like religious, that's how it's been described, uh, following. And prosecutors are, I believe, going to argue that that's really the motivation behind the alleged killing of these two children. Yeah, I have to be honest, like I have not followed this story super closely because it is so dark and so heartbreaking and also because the timeline is incredibly complicated and it goes back years and years and years. So I guess maybe the best way to do an overview of the facts is to talk about the charges that uh, Lori Vallow Daybell is facing. She's facing two counts of first degree murder, conspiracy and grand theft in connection with the death of her two children, J.J. Vallow and Tylee Ryan. How did these charges come about? It took, you know, it took a year or more of investigation after the children went missing before those charges were actually filed. So you're absolutely right. It's it's murder charges um, in the death of those two children, uh, JJ, who was seven, Tylee, who's 16. And then there's conspiracy because prosecutors are going to argue that she planned to kill them and use their identity to get benefits that would be coming coming to both children for different reasons. And then also she is charged with conspiracy to kill her husband's 
wife, late wife, the woman he was married to before marrying Lori Vallow. Um, and then there's the theft charges are related to that conspiracy of um, planning to use their benefits, if you will. And, and so it's, it is, it's very complicated. Those are the charges. She's also charged in Arizona. So additional charges down the road for conspiracy to kill her late husband, who was actually killed by her brother. You might need to draw a schematic, you know, it's like you need a flow chart. Yeah, for reals. I need a flow chart. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier this like cult-like atmosphere. Um, how do prosecutors say Lori Vallow and Chad Dable's religious beliefs played a role in what happened? So there are court documents from family members and from, you know, witness statements that have been collected throughout this investigation. And so we do have a little bit of insight into that where uh, people have reported that Lori talked about her children being taken over, possessed, um, that they were actually zombies and needed to die. And so oh, there is this idea, um, and they had, there was like said doomsday, the idea that the end of the world was coming, that was imminent. And, you know, twofold. One is that they needed to be killed because they were zombies. Also, some talk about essentially saving them from that end of end of life or end of the world um, doomsday that was just around the corner. I believe they had a date that now has since passed, but they were talking about a specific date that the end of the world was coming. So I think that's where we're going to we're going to hear that um, that religion and that the belief system coming into into this trial. So Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell were tracked down in Hawaii by police in early 2020. So why did it take three years after that for this trial to start? Well, there was um, quite a few things that happened. One, I mean, there was a, a 90-day period where Lori had been found unfit to stand trial. So she was actually placed into the custody of Idaho Health and Welfare. And that was with the um, belief that she would be able to receive treatment and receive care and then ultimately be determined whether or not she was going to be fit. After that period of time, that commitment, she was found to be fit for trial. So we had to wait for that. And also, anytime there is a case this complex, I mean, there are multiple hearings that have to happen. And there's there are multiple arguments that get made by both prosecutors and defense in terms of you know, what evidence is going to be in? What are those charges going to be? Where is the case going to be held? So it's been changed. You know, there's a change of venue. That's why it's here in Ada County. This case actually originates out of Rexburg. Um, but they moved it here to Ada County in hopes of being able to have a bigger jury pool and hopefully be able to get enough people to seat a jury uh, that would not be biased and maybe potentially weren't nearly as informed about this case as you might expect in a small town like Rexburg, where it has been headline news for years now. Yeah. What access? I mean, we've seen quite a bit here, you know, in in Boise even. But I know uh, there's some, a lot of limitations at the courthouse right now. So what access does the media have to be eyes and ears on this trial for the public? Yeah, so access is very, very limited. And that is something that is unusual for us in Ada County. Normally, we would have uh, access to at least one camera that then all media outlets would be able to share that video feed. So we would get video and audio each day, all day during the trial, excluding any sort of, you know, specialized testimony that wouldn't be allowed, the public wouldn't be allowed to see. So sidebars and such wouldn't be covered. But that that's normally what we what we have in Ada County. Um, this judge, the Seventh District Court judge, it's Judge Boyce. Uh, he has now he's ruled. He ruled a while ago that 
no cameras would be allowed. And audio is going to be delayed, meaning that um, reporters and the public won't have access unless they're in that courtroom. They will not have access to any recordings of audio until the end of the day at the earliest. And so that's unusual, meaning that the folks at home, people who are watching this case, if you aren't in the courtroom, which is going to be limited access uh, each day, the judge, somehow the court, we don't even know what that process exactly is, but somehow each day people are able to put in a request to be in the courtroom. There will be a limited space in the courtroom, and then also there will be at what they call an overflow room, so kind of a, a viewing gallery, if you will, that has a screen um, that will be feeding that audio and that video to a, a larger room where more people are able to be seated. Um, and then if you're not in either one of those rooms, it will be it will be later that day that, that we will be able to get that audio. But there will not be uh, cameras and there will not be a, a, a video recording of the court case as it happens. Does that have anything to do with the fact that the details of this case are likely to be morbid and disturbing and, and pretty rough? You know, it's interesting. I, I don't know exactly all of the, um, you know, the the thought process that went into the judge's decision or this ruling. I do know that it is certainly going to be, they are talking to jurors, potential jurors about that, talking about autopsy photos. We do know it's been described as exceptionally egregious in terms of the way that these um, children were killed and also the effort that went into concealing their um, deaths. And so I believe that there will be lots of gruesome testimony. I also think, though, the judge is really concerned about fairness of this of this trial and also protecting the integrity of the witnesses, protecting the integrity of those who are a part of this process. And so um, I think it's twofold and it's, you know, certainly um, I understand that and, and can respect that that's what he's trying to do. Although I know that there's quite a bit of frustration, you know, wanting access. Let's talk a little more about the jury. Um, selection took several days starting this last week. Um, how much time will jurors be expected in the courthouse once selected? Could the trial go on for months? They are saying that this trial is expected to last eight to 10 weeks. And that's assuming mm -hmm. that it follows the schedule that they are you know, sort of laying out. Now, anything could happen uh, that would delay that. Of course, things can go quicker than they thought. But that's what they're asking jurors to be able to do is to stay eight to 10 weeks, which is why they wanted at least um, six alternates. So, you know, a, a jury of 12, they picked six extra people that will not be on the jury unless needed as an alternate. So what that means is they won't be a part of the decision unless at some point during that case, they need to, to swap out with one of those 12 main jurors. And, and that's not unusual. I mean, in eight to 10 weeks, a lot can happen. So there can be a, an illness, they can have a family emergency, you know, something can change in their life that means that they can't participate as a juror. And there's also possibility, you know, talking about the witness statements and, and the type of evidence they're going to be looking at, it's not unheard of to have a juror really be bothered by that and just not be able to, to complete that. If a juror is so affected that they aren't able to make a decision or come to a decision that is not biased or they feel like they are not able to listen to that testimony, that's when they know they need to be excused. Mm. Well, and the story of this case has been everywhere. A Netflix documentary, Dateline, local, national media. Are jurors expected to not know about the case? So they're not expected to know nothing. I mean, I think the, the questioning definitely, there was a lot of questioning about where do you get your news? 
And, and then, of course, depending on what that answer was, how much news they listened to, how much they thought they knew about the case, they were either excused or allowed to continue. So the folks that were allowed to continue, it didn't mean that they had heard nothing about the case. But what prosecutors and defense attorneys are most worried about are their ability to make a decision without allowing anything that they've heard before to skew that view. And so that's really what they were focused on. It's very difficult to find a jury that has had absolutely no exposure to this story at all. There were a few. We did hear a couple of people who were questioned say they knew nothing about it. They have lived here for a long time and they don't know this story. They don't know this name. And so it's not that that doesn't happen. It just is unusual with a case this high profile. It's difficult to find people who have heard nothing about it or or don't know anything, you know, have no history about it. Yeah, I saw uh, a juror be dismissed because he said, oh, my wife, she's a real true crime buff. And I kind of accidentally knew more than I intended to about this. But uh, what other things stand out to you about how prosecutors and defense attorneys have gone about selecting the jurors? I think there are two things that are really interesting. One is the focus on evidence. So one of the questions of potential jurors focused around the show CSI. So that's the show where, you know, you solve a crime in 60 minutes, uh, they run a test and the, you know, the evidence is immediate and it is clear cut. That's not reality. Um, so they were interested in hearing jurors' opinions on what they thought evidence should be and the type of evidence they would be willing to trust. So I think that's interesting. Um, the second piece was their focus on circumstantial evidence. The prosecutors used the example of if you leave a cookie jar with your child or with a child, you leave the room, you come back in, the cookie jar appears untouched, but the child has crumbs and you know chocolate chips all over their face. Would you be able to infer that the child ate a cookie, even though you were not able to see him, have no proof, you know, definitive proof, but given that circumstantial evidence of the crumbs and the chocolate, would you be able to feel comfortable saying, yes, the child ate the cookie? That's circumstantial evidence. And I believe that given what we know about the way that these children were potentially killed, the way that their bodies were concealed, uh, it would not be surprising if, if we're going to be in a situation where the evidence will show that they were killed intentionally they were killed by someone, meaning it was a homicide, but we don't have a way to know exactly who did that and exactly how. Um, I think that's going to be what some of the prosecution is is hinging on. And I think that that's important for them to, to be able to have jurors who are able to make that inference without that evidence and to understand the reality of what evidence looks like and what it actually can tell us. Mm. There's been a lot of uh, back and forth about who from the family can be in the courtroom. Can you give us an update on that if you can? Yes. So the relationship here uh, is definitely an interesting one. So J.J. Vallow was called, you know, we talk about him as being Lori's son because he was an adopted son. He is biologically Charles Vallow's nephew. And Charles Vallow is Lori's most recent husband who was killed. We talked about the conspiracy charge earlier. Um, that's the, the husband that is connected to that case. So um, Lori's brother actually shot and killed Charles Vallow. So he is um, JJ's uncle, and then Lori and Charles adopted JJ. 
So during this, um, we've heard about JJ's grandparents. That's, that's how they have been referred to. Um, they have been a, a major part of this case from the time that these children were, were found missing or were determined to be missing. In fact, they offered a $20,000 reward. You've seen them, you know, do interviews and talk about bringing JJ home. Uh, they are actually um, an aunt and uncle, I believe, biologically, um, but have argued all along that they felt and were called and were treated as grandparents of JJ. So they are a, a significant part of this case. In their opinion, they have argued that they are victims in this case, and they should have the right, as all victims do, have a right to be part of this court process. But they are also witnesses. And so the defense uh, tried to keep them out of the trial, arguing that witnesses are not allowed to sit and listen to other testimony because it could skew their, their um, opinion. It could change what they say. Um, they may hear something that they didn't realize and, and unintentionally even change their testimony. However, uh, the judge did rule that they were allowed to be in the courtroom. Um, so ultimately, uh, you know, kind of erring on the side of they are victims and have a right to be there. Do you have any idea when Chad Daybill will face trial? We don't yet. I mean, it will be sometime after Lori's trial ends. Um, they were initially supposed to be tried together, but defense attorneys argued that they should be separate. And then ultimately that was found to be true. It will be interesting. Uh, Chad Daybell's attorney has been around the courtroom. He has been listening. He was listening to the jury selection. Uh, it will be interesting to see how that plays out. I mean, we've all you know, sort of speculated, will there be testimony from Chad Daybell implicating Lori in some way? Um, you know, will there be a sort of a um, pointing of fingers in, in both directions? That remains to be seen. Well, we really appreciate you making some time to give us some clarification on this very complicated case and uh, just a really heavy, heavy one. So take care of yourself as you're as you're doing this. Yes, for sure we will. And we will continue to keep everybody updated. And uh, maybe we can look forward to talking about it at the conclusion of the trial so we can see how all those pieces and parts came together. And before you head out, Mayor Lauren McLean announced that the application to bring back passenger rail service to Boise has officially been submitted. If approved, the city would receive funding to do a study on our existing rail infrastructure, as well as what possible service would look like exactly. We did a whole episode on this with our pals at CityCast Salt Lake. Just scroll back in our feed to find it. That's all for today here on CityCast Boise. If you enjoyed the show, why not tell a friend? Leave us a review and subscribe to our Hey Boise newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more local stories from around the city. Bye.